Welcome to the Money Advantage Podcast, empowering business owners with the permission to think differently about money so that you can consciously choose to live a meaningful and fulfilled life now. Our passion is making money simple, fun, and doable, helping you feel great about your money and getting your money working for you so you can thrive. All right. Good morning and welcome back to the Money Advantage Podcast. This is Rachel Marshall with my co-host Bruce Weiner and special guest John Moriarty today. I need to tell you a little bit about this really exciting show that we have for you because I'm wondering if maybe you have come from this perspective of saying, I'm interested in privatized banking. I'm hearing you guys talk about this specially designed whole life insurance and how it can be used as a store of capital, how it can be a reserve in your business and your family, how it can boost returns and how valuable it is having this legacy that can continue on helping your kids to prosper. So we want to show you this in action behind the scenes. And so we're going to show you this conversation with somebody who's been using privatized banking in their family and their business for the past 11 years with a system of policies and really help you understand the dynamics of what is really happening with these privatized banking policies and why it's so valuable. So Bruce, good morning. I'll bring you into the show first. Good morning and welcome to the show. Good morning, Rachel. Uh, As always, we try to bring value to every podcast and there's no one more valuable out there than John Moriarty, both in my mind and in his mind. So that's that's great. He's going to bring a lot of great things to the to the podcast. The thing that I want a lot of truth being told yeah, today. Absolutely. And the thing I want people to understand is is that I've mentioned on the podcast before that you know there, I could argue that I've been doing this privatized banking since 1987 when I first took my the policy that my mother and father took out on me in 1963, and we used the cash value to buy our first house. And then the second time I started it without even knowing what I was doing, I took my second uh, policy loan to buy my home. We moved to California and then we paid it back. John and I formally did not start this until we kind of got hooked up with uh, Bob and Carlos um, and Nelson, the Nelson Nash Institute. And although I can get into the numbers with people and I enjoy doing it for certain people, John is very, very, very adept at showing numbers to people. And um, he, this will be a great, um, a great thing for those people that really need to see the numbers. But yet I think in this podcast, we're going to talk about it uh, on a very conceptual um, basis. And then we're going to talk, we're going to allow our, our listeners to go to the numbers later on. Absolutely. And Bruce, I thank you for sharing that. I know that you and John have been working together for many years. John, it's a pleasure to have you on the show today. I know you are the founder and also the president of E3 Consultants Group. And I just love all of the resources and valuable information that you've shared with me over the years about privatized banking. And so we're really excited to be able to share your knowledge and wisdom with our audience today. So John, welcome to the show. Thank you, Rachel, and thank you, Bruce, for uh, that wonderful and truthful introduction. Um, I've actually been uh, really excited about this uh, opportunity to talk with your guys' audience. Um, very, uh, very impressed with what you guys have been doing, um, the reach that your podcast has been creating, the um, the guests that you've been bringing on to the show, and the knowledge and expertise you've kind of been bringing to the public on you know topics that relate to money. Uh, so I'm I'm honored to be on the show, and um, I'm yours. So just 
tell me where you want this thing to go and uh, we'll, we'll go there as fast as we can. Awesome. Well, let's go ahead and kind of jump in first to kind of who you are behind the scenes, what led you into the financial space and what led you into privatized banking. I mean, for anyone who's jumping in the conversation, maybe right now, I want you to know that we're going to be looking behind the scenes of a privatized banking system that's in action. We're going to be looking at cash values and dividends and what the growth looks like and how much funding is going into a policy and what the death benefit looks like and really being able to think about what are these numbers and what are they doing for you in your personal and business life. And so I love that you are a super smart and very savvy, not only financial, you have a financial head about you, but you also are a very smart and savvy business person. And I think what we really want our audience to hear today is that you're using this in your personal life, but also to complement and accelerate your business. So go ahead and share with us a little bit how, oh, go ahead. No, I I was going to say, yeah, uh, from an entrepreneurial standpoint, um, yeah, I've I've started, you know, four or five different companies. I've been involved as an active investor in several different areas. This type of strategy uh, permeates pretty much everything I do personally and business wise. Um, And and what I would say is my my mindset is is one where I, I wouldn't call myself a, a visionary where I kind of see ideas and say, hey, this is this is something I need to bring to people. I, I actually, um, I think I'm blessed in that I find myself surrounded by really smart people in a lot of instances, and I gravitate to those types of people. What I try to do is try to, you know, basically garner as much knowledge for them as possible, figure out ways to give back to them, and then take what might seem as very complicated or complex strategies and try to simplify them, try to create processes around and templates around them. And then I, I do something that I guess for some people is, is very difficult. I just stay on track with things. I don't, you know, like when I, when I see something that works, I don't, I don't deviate from it. I continue. And then if there's ways to improve that strategy, absolutely. Always looking to evolve. I'm, you know, not stuck in my ways, but as an entrepreneur, which I, you know, consider myself a kind of a Sierra entrepreneur, um, I'm always looking at resources, time, talent, and capital on how to leverage those. So this type of strategy that involves um, various money-related topics, right? You're, you're talking about life insurance. You're talking about, um, you know, borrowing against an asset, which is, you know, creating leverage. You're talking about ways to put your money to work for you. These are, these are concepts that a lot of Americans don't understand, not because um, they have a lack of knowledge or education. It's, it's really because they've never been taught these things. Our status quo um, kind of inhibits the entrepreneurial mindset. So that, that's actually when, when we started E3 Consultants um, a long time ago, the idea was to kind of awaken the inner entrepreneur and everybody and this this strategy is is just a it's a fundamental um, foundational strategy that goes with it it is um, I try to tell people this is not rocket science this is actually really simple when you, when you kind of get out of your own way and just understand what this is and what it isn't um, but the, the exciting thing to me is uh, finding out ways to have your money working for you in more than one place when you, when you start to really understand that you realize why people like you and Bruce are so passionate about sharing, sharing your knowledge with people. Absolutely. And I I really appreciate you sharing that because I think it's very obvious as we hear you talk that this is about improving your life. This isn't just about a 
financial strategy that sounds really amazing that we think everyone should be on board with. This is something that you've seen improve your life as you've been around people who were smarter than you. And I've also been in that position of saying, how can I learn from people who are beyond me? How can I do things better in my financial life? And so as we are stepping into that and as we are figuring out what works financially, then we want to be able to share that with so many people as well. So how did you get involved in the financial space in the first place? So I, I played uh, baseball in college. Uh, and then let's see, at some point I realized that I was not going to get a major league team to uh, compensate me to continue that, uh, that goal going forward. So I started doing an internship uh, in financial services with an organization in St. Louis and, you know, really fell in love with the entrepreneurial spirit of the organization. Um, that's actually the same organization that Bruce got into the business with, um, you know, it, it was a group of about a hundred different financial professionals that had investment background, insurance background, tax background. So I got into the business with a lot of really smart people. Um, and luckily I was able to finagle my way into a role where, um, I, I really wasn't good at getting clients and, and I, I didn't have really a passion for wanting to talk with people about their overall financial situation. I wanted to deal with the numbers. So mm. I, I, I was uh, kind of smart in where I found really good people that were good with clients and had a good client base. And I figured out ways to add value for them. So I spent like the first eight years of the business, um, really supporting other advisors. And that's actually what helped me create the building blocks for E3 consultants group, because, um, we built up, we built a process and systems and operations around, um, independent advisors. Um, so getting into the business that way actually made me focus more on, um, understanding the numbers and analysis, but then over time I started to realize, okay, if, if you're going to live in that numbers world, um, you, you're, you're going to have some struggles in trying to communicate very complex concepts that, and, and again, money is a very complicated concept for a lot of people to understand because it's an intangible money has more to do with emotions mm -hmm. and the mental side of, you know, people's livelihood and their, um, their goals and their dreams versus the, the actual numbers. So, um, in 2005, I was able to, um, work with a business coach who, uh, introduced me to neuro-linguistic programming. Um, so NLP, just the study of how people think, communicate and behave. And at that point, um, that's when the light bulb went off. And I said, well, if we start taking E3 and evolving the way that our business model works and start thinking about uh, ways to communicate to our clients concepts and strategies that relate to the way that they think, communicate, and behave in regards to money, maybe our business model could have an impact. And I, you know, after several years of doing that, as Bruce mentioned earlier, we got um, connected with the folks at the Nelson Nash Institute. Uh, we also came across, um, you know, kind of insurance industry icons like Kim Butler, Garrett Gunderson, um, Todd Langford with True Concepts. And so, you know, this community of very wise financial professionals mm -hmm. were talking about concepts and ideas. And, you know, a lot of it related to life insurance, which i was introduced to in 1995 and, and saw the, the power and value of life insurance 
But what I also saw is why the communities and business owners and individuals and families and just, you know, uh, middle America didn't really understand life insurance um, mm-hmm. because insurance companies don't market the values of life insurance. That's, that, you know, Absolutely. insurance companies, insurance companies are actually concerned that if they do too good of a job communicating the value of what they create, they could potentially lose the tax advantages that are written into the tax code. And I've, I've had insurance executives say that to me in boardrooms um, because banks will communicate what they do and they will, they will stand behind their FDIC protection, mutual fund companies, financial institutions, they will all tout why they're in existence and why you need them. Insurance companies will not. So in essence, you know, that, that creates a little bit of a, a disconnect with the public, but it also creates a great opportunity for folks like you guys to come in and really educate and build relationships and, and for the financial institution that is an insurance company to just be a conduit to kind of provide the security and the promises that, you know, you're basically educating them on. Hey, John, one of the things I think that's important for listeners to, to know is that um, you and I both um, see this as a really powerful financial tool. But we, but we also see it as a, a really great way to protect income, build a legacy, so on and so forth. But I'd like to point this out to our listeners that when John first came upon this, he wasn't, he wasn't married. I'm not even sure if Ellen was in the picture. So he, he yeah, so he had right. no reason to, to think of the death benefit or the, the legacy. My wife and I don't have, have children. People don't understand why I'm so into this death benefit and legacy thing, but it's because we've realized that this is a financial tool mm-hmm. uh, that can help anybody walk a life, whether you're a business owner, whether you're a person that wants to think entrepreneurially, but are in a, a, a nine to five job. And what I think um, from the neuro-linguistic programming um, uh, studies that we've all done, and you've done it uh, very, very well, is that this is about money habits. Mm-hmm. And um, money habits is no different than what a bank does. Banks just stay on task. You know, they, they try to get as much money into the bank. They try to pay you as little as possible back. And then they try to lend it to people that have good collateral. And in some cases, that's the most frustrating thing because they only lend it to people that don't need it. Right. And then they, and then they work on that arbitrage. Mm-hmm. And you said it's not rocket science. I often say it's not magic. You know, it's who is the bank? Now, the other thing is not only who is the bank, but you, this isn't going to work unless you have good money habits. Well, there's a heck of a lot of people out there right now that are frustrated. Maybe I want you to talk about this a little bit. They're frustrated because they have good money habits, but they can't get rewarded for good money habits because fixed income bonds, the bank is not paying them anything. So it's forcing people into the stock market to get any kind of returns. So would you like to, I know you've commented on this, you know, tons of times over the last dozen years, but I think the listeners would really benefit from hearing from you. Yes. I, uh, that's a great point, Bruce. I, I think um, what you got to do is, it, and, and this is, this is where being around really smart people, you, you start to study history, you start to learn about money in the economy and the, um, Kind of the research I started doing when I wrote my first book, uh, Understanding the Secret Language of Money, I, I started looking into 
why banks operate the way they do, why the financial markets are the way they are today. And you kind of have to go back 40, 50 years to really the early 70s. Nixon takes us off the gold standard, interest rates, you know, jump. And then you have this systematic process in which bonds and interest rates uh, start, bonds start benefiting from a drop in interest rates because, you know, as the teeter-totter interest rates and, and value of bonds, when interest rates go down, the value of bonds go up. So you had about mm-hmm. a 30-year window of time where bonds actually outperformed uh, stocks. So if you, you look at uh, the ni- from 1981 to 2011, it's the first time in history going all the way back to the Civil War. So 1860s was the last time this would have happened where fixed income outperformed the equity market. So you had individuals who were going into 401ks and retirement savings from the 80s through the 90s through the 2000s, and they were experiencing tremendously great returns in a well-balanced portfolio, in a typical stock bond cash portfolio, because equities and fixed income were performing at the same level. So in essence, if I had half my money in stocks and say 40% bonds and 10% cash, I, I technically had 90% equivalent in the market because I got 90% returns that look like the market. Well, that was great mm. when interest rates were here and they were dropping because your bond, your investments were performing, but also your ability to borrow and consume was improving. Because now all of a sudden, you know, if I'm, if I'm borrowing because I don't have the capital to save, so I'm leveraging, I'm, I'm using the bank's money and I'm buying cars and I'm putting things on credit cards and I'm putting things on, um, you know, long-term financing. Well, my, my interest cost is going down. Well, what, what that basically meant was people were the shift from being savers to being consumers was occurring and it did not happen overnight. It happened over multiple decades. So now we get to today and just like you said, Bruce, now savers are kind of being punished because it's like that whole time consumers were benefiting, savers were seeing the interest rates they were earning on their money going down. So now if I still have those same habits of saving money, I'm putting the money in the bank or someplace safe, making maybe 1% on that money, and I have this choice of either my principal does not work for me as much as it used to, or I have to take more risk, which is where people are kind of flocking to the stock market, which, by the way, you can, you can see a direct correlation to how um, the economy and the government and corporate America, uh, you know, kind of how they try to drive our behaviors. When, when we have this pandemic and you see... Uh, people turn to the government to say, hey, we, we need your support. And the government comes up with $3 trillion to kind of pump into the economy. You can see what that does to certain types of investments. Well, the stock market pretty much was a direct beneficiary of that $3 trillion because the market dropped about 33% in about 90 days and has just now recovered where the rest of the economy has not recovered yet. But that money almost directly kind of went back into the stock market. So to Bruce's point, um, that is that is where people are kind of thinking, well, that's how I have to make my money is in the market. But in reality, you guys know, because you talk about this so much, 
There's so many other ways to put your money to work, so many other different asset classes. I know you guys have a lot of folks on that have built their wealth with real estate and, and business. But again, if people aren't educated about those strategies or those ways to put their money to work, they're just going to go with what the status quo kind of tells them. And if you get educated right. and you say, okay, well, I don't like the way things are today. That's kind of like step one. But mm-hmm. not doing anything or, or continuing with the status quo is probably not the answer. But then people feel a little lost. And then, and then it gets to where they don't know what to do. Anxiety sets in, concern sets in. And, and so this is where the education, this is where the abundance mindset, the ability to help add value to people comes in handy because people, people will know who's being authentic in their desire mm-hmm. to help guide them versus trying to just sell them something. Absolutely. I really appreciate Bruce, you asking that question, kind of that lead in to life insurance, because I think there is still that huge concern that if I save and if I make sure that I have these reserves, they're not doing anything for me yet. I need cash. I want to have cash reserves in my personal life, in my business. I know that I'm going to need to fund, whether it's paying quarterly taxes, or I'm going to need to fund payroll, or I have these upcoming large expenses because I want to buy another business, or I want to do a large investment. I want to have the cash surplus. I want to be in a position to take advantage of opportunity, yet that money's not doing a lot for me. And so we've really landed, I mean, all three of us are talking all the time about privatized banking and how this is a key piece of that. So let's lead into what were the reasons why you started your first privatized banking policy and kind of walk us through when was that? And, and then I'll ask you some follow on sure. questions as we build where you are today. Yeah. So um, first thing is Bruce kind of alluded to earlier. I've, I've personally owned life insurance since, you know, 1995 when I was 21 years old. Um, it wasn't, it wasn't the same type of insurance that we're kind of talking about now it wasn't designed the same way, but it was life insurance. It, it built cash value. It was an asset that I looked at and I used in various ways. But when um, the, the first time I really decided, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to utilize what I refer to as specially designed life insurance contracts for the purpose of privatized banking was in 2009. And um, I, I had been introduced to the Nelson Nash Institute. I had read Nelson's book um, several years before that. Um, and for whatever reason, it just didn't it didn't sink in, but I, I think the um, the aftermath of the the Great Recession, you know, two thousand seven, two thousand eight, working with clients, mm-hmm. having hundreds of conversations with clients about their money that was invested in the market, and looking to find ways to um, calm their fears, but also searching for explanation and answers and reasons as to why things happened the way they did, and you know, this, this, this was kind of that journey for me to really study um, the past, kind of learn from people in the present, and then figure out how to go forward in the future. And, and the one thing about me, Rachel, that um, is, you know, I'm kind of an open book with stuff. I'm, I'm very much a, a show and tell type of person. So if I'm going to do something or recommend it to someone else, normally, I'm gonna, I'm gonna Mm -hmm. implement that strategy myself. So I said, okay, I'm going to set up a policy. I'm going to design it in the way that I believe I can be using it for privatized banking. And then from probably 2009 to 2012, 
I, you know, we, we, um, my wife and I, um, funded four different policies. I, I basically funded them. Um, I kind of built them in a way that I knew where the cash was going to come from. Uh, I knew what I wanted to use those for. So I didn't just do them all at once. I kind of did them, you know, in probably, you know, probably four years in succession. But the idea was to really build this as my, private bank and use it for all of the different things. I, I believe I've kind of sent you information that you're mm-hmm. going to share with uh, your, your listeners yes. and viewers, but I I've used this yes. for virtually anything you can think of that relates to your personal economy or your business economy. So for me, I've, I've, do, you know, I've gone kind of all in on that strategy, but it's also something where it's very easy for me to communicate to someone about, well, what can you use this for? How, how should I do this? Because I say, well, here's what I do. And then, and then kind of talk through their situation. I love that you mentioned several things. One that you wanted to go all in on this strategy that you were hearing and seeing was the answer for all of the fears and the turmoil that happened in the great recession. So a, you're seeing it as a solution for that. You're seeing it as a good place to store cash. And I also heard very specifically, you said, I knew where the money was coming from to fund the policies and I knew what I wanted to use it for. So I think sometimes when somebody is going to implement privatized banking really well, they already have a purpose in mind for the money. It's not just, I'm going to save 90% of my income in a privatized banking policy, or that would probably be a little um, irrational depending on what the income was and how much of it you were um, using on a regular basis. But there is already a purpose for that cash. So I love how you brought in both of those elements. Can you talk about then, so you started using these policies, you were funding policies and at this time now, you have today built more than those four policies, correct? Correct. Right. Yeah. And I've, I've used that money um, dozens of times. And, uh, you know, I've probably had in that, you know, what would be now 11 years, um, you know, close to $2 million run through, you know, in premiums run through the policies. I've probably taken about $2 million of loans out. And I think probably repaid almost a million dollars in loans um, back to the policies. And then, you know, I'm, this is a continual process. So, uh, you know, for, for some of the clients that we would work with, sometimes we're looking at funding the policies over a shorter window of time with other clients that's over a longer period of time. The biggest thing is, and you alluded to this, People don't focus on the purpose of their money and uh, enough, mm-hmm. meaning that if I've got money laying in different accounts, uh, one of the simplest things we try to ask them and get a response from is, well, that money that's sitting in this account at this bank or at this financial institution, what is the purpose of that money? And if, if you ever go through that exercise with a client or just yourself individually, you start to realize that maybe the place that you're storing that money or accumulating that money and the purpose, they may not, they might not be in alignment. So if they're not in alignment, Mm -hmm. then the question is, okay, what, what do I do to correct that? Or you may say the timeframe that that money is going to be there and the risks that I'm taking, you know, might I want to adjust that? And, and that is kind of the process I had already gone through with myself. Um, I'm not someone that, invest in the stock market as um, like a long-term investor. I don't have any qualified assets. Um, I invest in businesses. I invest in real estate. I invest in people. 
Um, I invest in people's ideas. So that doesn't mean I haven't invested in, say, stocks or individual securities. Um, a lot of times when I've done that, I've invested in private companies, not public companies, um, to just potentially mm-hmm. take advantage of their time, talent, and capital and what that might mean when you know they go from being private to public or sell. Um, but the, the bottom line is I'm positioning those dollars so that whatever risk I'm taking, I'm, I'm not looking at my system of banking, system of financing as something that's going to be negatively impacted if an investment doesn't work. What I mean by that is I'm not saving up a finite amount of money to essentially live on the rest of my life. My thought process is right. with my talents, with my time, with my capital, I'm trying to create an infinite amount of money that is going to run through mm-hmm. my policies, but it's not staying there. And also at the same time too, I'm not stopping the, um, the process of saving, utilizing, replenishing dollars. So I'm, I'm not going to get to a point where I'm, I'm not making money, nor do I see myself getting to a point where the investments that I make are just going to say mature and then just, you know, it's going to be this lump of money and it's just going to kind of sit there. So again, there, there are people mm-hmm. out there that have that mindset of, you know, like what I explain to clients is when I create a banking system with insurance contracts, there is a finite amount of money that can go through those policies because there's a mm-hmm. finite amount of premium if, if you want to keep it within the tax code and keep the tax-free benefits. And there's a finite amount of money I can get out of those policies because I, I, you know, I, can't, I can't get more out than what I put in plus my growth over time, which that growth is going to be finite. But mm-hmm. if I continue to expand my banking system, that, that amount of money that can run through my system can be infinite, which is why Nelson Nash referred to it as an infinite banking system. Um, we say mm-hmm. privatized banking just, you know, after reading um, uh, Carlos and Carlos Lara and Bob Murphy's book, I, I thought that was just amazing. So when you see a good idea, best thing to do in my mind is steal it and then, you know, give people, give people props for, you know, creating that idea. But the idea of having an infinite system the infinite aspect of it is not that the system does the work for you. The infinite part is, is that you never stop creating and you just have a place to have that money to work for you. So time, talent, capital, those are the three resources that every human being has or has access to. And so my thought process is I'm going to use my time more efficiently to, to increase my talent. And by leveraging those two, I'm going to create, an infinite amount of capital. And that, that has to have a place to be stored so that I can utilize it. If you start thinking that way, then you, mm-hmm. you kind of ask yourself, okay, forget about this whole life insurance thing. Forget about the idea of building policies and everything else. Ask yourself, okay, if I'm not doing that, then what am I doing? Okay. Where's that money going? And there's a good chance it's probably going to sit in a bank or run through a bank. It's not, you're not Mm going to take that money and put it in something that's going to have a high level of risk because you don't want it to have risk while it sits there. You want to, you want to look at that risk when you deploy your capital, put it into investments or your business or anything. So the place you're going to store that money is probably going to be somewhere that's safe, it's liquid, and you want it to work for you. And if it's the bank, then this concept, this privatized banking concept should be a no brainer for most people when they really start thinking about what are my alternatives? 
And for safe money right now, it's either the bank or your private bank. I mean, that's, that's really what it boils down to. And, and it's not mm-hmm. everything else. That's, I think, where, you know, the, the Internet is great. Um, the information that people can find today versus 20, 30 years ago when I got into the business is it's mind boggling what you can find. Um, but then, you know, the, the, the idea or the, the phrase, you know, be careful what you wish for is also something you have to consider because, because there's an infinite amount of information out there, anybody can say anything they want about a concept or an idea. So therefore you, you can run across people that maybe have ulterior motives or, you know, they don't like mm-hmm. something because they're really offering something that competes against something else. And what you have to do today is, is really work with people that have your best interest in mind, who, who are looking at you, your situation from a fiduciary perspective. Mm-hmm. But you also have to work with somebody that can answer your questions and can, and can tell you what something is and what something isn't. And, and that's why with this type of concept, I, I love when I listen to your guys' podcast. I mean, you, you guys do a great job of explaining what privatized banking isn't what, what, you know, like explaining to people that don't, don't confuse yourself with this, as Bruce said, is this being something that's magic? It's, it's not, but that doesn't mean it can't be powerful and can't be important. And so that's, that's what I love about your guys' message and the way that you share information. It is, it is so abundant, but it's also truthful. (laughs) You're, you're getting to the heart of the matter. Well, John, well, think, that's a that's a perfect. Ahead. I'm sorry, Rachel. That's because that's a perfect segue for the next thing I was going to ask. Yeah, you go said ahead. That, that's abundant. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because what I found is there's two types of people that look at this and they they either jump in inappropriately, and it's a lot of times it's these real estate investors that are sitting on a lot of money. And frankly, maybe I did a bad job of explaining this. You know, they say, okay, I want to. I want to put my money in there and then I want to go buy some real estate and I want to put it back in there. Well, I, they, they tend to be very abundant minded and they tend to be loose and loose with their cash mm-hmm. and they don't know where their next premium is going to come from a lot of times because they're flippers. And then that, so they, I don't, they don't have good consistent money habits. Yep. So what I tried to, what the message I want to try to say to those people is I think you need to develop this uh, bank for you capitalize this bank over several years before you jump into the concept because then you have then you have some reserves that you can fall back on when you're when you're not flipping the other person that uh, so that's one person mm-hmm. the other person that is the ultra conservative yes i got 800 grand in the bank and i think this is a good situation but if i give you the way we design it if i give it to you the first year premium I'm only going to have access to maybe 65 to 75% of my cash. And I don't like giving up that 25% liquidity. And I simply say to them, now, wait a minute, you still, if we're going to do hundred grand a year, you still have 700,000 over here in the bank. This is a concept that you helped me, mm-hmm. you know, uh, explain, but I don't think we've ever touched on this in, on the program before is yes, you only have 75,000 available of the 100, but you still have $700,000 sitting in the bank. So you really have 775,000 of the 800 of liquidity. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's not only 70, I can't, I, I should have done the math beforehand, but it's, 
it's a lot. It's in the 90th percent. Yeah. You know, it's not in the 75 percent. And there's a lot of people out there now that are trying to build these policies where you have you have access to 94 or 95 percent. And the, the only way you can build that is if you do a blended That's PUA. 97% That's 97 percent, Bruce. Yeah, 97 percent. Yeah. <laughs> and, it, and it goes higher from there. Um, but they blend it for they blend it in a PUA, and that PUA blend is not guaranteed because they're actually buying down the term insurance every time the PUA is added to the death benefit. And I think I just the question I wanted you to have is how do you how do you help a person through the, their mindset yep. and scarcity? Because I know you your business coach because I saw you when you were really wanted to do the numbers more than you wanted to be with people. And now you're the biggest people person I know, you know, in, in the industry. So talk a little bit about how that scarcity mindset and those good money habits have actually changed the way you look at it and you talk through this with people. Yeah. It's, uh, thank you, Bruce. I, I would say that um, when I started thinking about someone's uh, financial situation. I, I I can't remember where I came across this term, but you know this idea of someone's personal economy, right? So you you have a mm -hmm. personal economy, and then if you're a business owner or an entrepreneur, you, you have a business economy, and then sometimes you know those those circles kind of intersect. You know, if you're an entrepreneur, your business economy will impact your personal economy. So when when I started attempting to educate uh, our clients, our advisors at E3 our operations team and staff to really to really understand that you just can't talk about interest rates and taxes and all these other things as, as just something that's kind of out there. You have to relate it to that person's situation. So you have to look at someone's tax return and say, this is your tax rate. This is your marginal tax rate. This is how taxes impact you. This is, you know, your financial picture. This is where your assets are. Um, this is how your money is allocated. We started talking about things from that perspective. What what we really started to realize is, and again, this just goes back to our educational system. People don't understand simple concepts related to money, like cash flow or budgets, or as we like to say, you know, cash flow awareness. They don't know where their money's going, how money flows through um, their uh, from their say W two to their checking account or from their business account to their checking account. They, and then they don't keep track of where money is going. They don't understand if money is being spent in ways that is, um, you know, creating more capital or if it's, you know, creating more expenses. So for us, term, when we really started educating clients about their cash flow and then realizing everything is built on that, right? So if you have good habits with money, good cash flow, and this doesn't relate to, you know, do I keep a checkbook? Do I keep a register? Do I know where my money goes? Um, this is more about understanding, do you, you know, do you spend more than you make? Or how much of your money is is being controlled by the, the bank? Um, one of Bruce and I's mentors, uh, Mark Benson, has done an amazing job of this concept of, of kind of looking at how much of your money is controlled by banks, you know, and in your mortgage payment, your car payments, um, you know, any financing that you do, how much of your money is kind of controlled by the government, like in 401ks and IRAs, and then how much money, you know, do you control? Um, these are, mm -hmm. these are simple concepts that when you can start communicating them to clients, 
what you really get them to understand is if I understand my cash flow, I understand what I need on a month to month basis. And I understand what I want to do with my money, the purpose of my money, which is mainly big ticket type things. Either I'm spending money um, for certain things, you know, travel, um, healthcare, children's education, taxes, those types of things, or I'm investing those dollars, right? I want to buy real estate. I want to invest in a business. I want to um, set money aside for, you know, a future, you know, change in life. Those are all things that can be laid out and can be strategized. And a private banking system can be built around those things. But if you attempt to kind of put the cart in front of the horse and, and put a banking system in place without understanding all those other things with your cash flow, excuse me, what will eventually happen? And, and, you know, Bruce and I have talked about this, you know, you, you think you understand people's financial situation and you've had multiple conversations with them, but until you actually kind of live life with them, right? You, you, they're a client for several years with you. They, they experience different things. Someone can tell you something about what their objectives are with money and they can tell you how they're going to utilize it. And then life happens and what, <laughs> what they told you they were going to do and what they end up actually doing is very different. And so that's mm -hmm. where with this type of strategy, you know, we, we, we got to build in enough flexibility to allow for those changes. But we also have to continue educating clients as to how this strategy works so that they understand this is not something that you can just push a button and it's on automatic pilot. This has to be something that is managed and you're managing the way that their cash flow is operating, you're managing the way they're utilizing their money, you're managing their expectations, you're managing their mindset. All of that has to be done in order for them to essentially come out the other side and look at this strategy and say, hey, yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. This is really working for me. It's not the insurance. It's not the insurance contract. It's not mm -hmm. what the dividends are doing or how the insurance company is paying its rate of return. That is not the vital aspect of this strategy. The vital aspect of the strategy is managing that personal and business economy so that you optimize your financial situation, you minimize your opportunity costs, and you make sure that you understand what your money is doing for you. And that is a, that is a, a role that I, I still feel like there aren't as many financial professionals in our industry that understand the, the gravity of, of that role and take it seriously, mm -hmm. that, that really understand, no, if I'm going to do this, I have to understand the economy. I got to understand. Yeah, yeah, I got to understand yeah. the client. So again, kudos to you guys for what you do from an education perspective, because, um, you know, the, this type of education is, is needed. It's, it's highly valuable. And people need to hear this type of stuff over and over and over to understand concepts. But then they still have to build a relationship with someone who's going to kind of guide them through it. Because, um, you know, there's very, yeah. there's very few clients that can yeah. kind of, quote unquote, do this on their own. Because, you know, they, even if they understand their personal and business economy, they might not necessarily understand how to operate those economies within a privatized banking system. 
John, I think, I feel like there's so many elements that I would love to highlight and um, we could take this conversation for five more hours and probably still not even scratch the surface. But what I heard that I really just want to articulate and pinpoint and bring to the surface is that you mentioned that privatized banking is this thing that helps you do your goals better. So it's this thing meant to be used it's not to sit on the shelf. And that's something that I think is really critical for somebody to understand. This is not a, let's look at this beautiful privatized banking system and and analyze it from all these different facets, but really let's figure out what are you doing in your life and how can we help you do that better? And usually privatized banking is this thing that is almost like if this is your life, it melds into like spokes of a wheel that helps to improve every other area of your life. And some of those areas are things like you're talking about being able to have this capital for funding investment opportunities and big ticket items that you already had planned to do anyways. And you're just having your cash sit in a better location on its way to doing this other job for you that you already had in your mind that's part of who you are as John Moyarty. Or Mm -hmm. any client could listen to this and say, what are my plans for the use of my money and how can I do that most effectively? You also mentioned this whole idea of you're not just trying to build up this mountain or this pile of cash to then drain off the interest and live on that as a retirement plan. Now, this is part of who you are, Mm -hmm. but we also believe that you the ideal position for a person is to be that producer who's doing as much as possible with their time and their talent and their resources. And they're in a position of creating infinite cash flow through cash flowing assets. So there's so many elements wrapped into that. But one is that the privatized banking system is a place to store capital that's going to give you that safety and liquidity and growth. It's also at the same time, providing this internal growth that's more than what you would be getting in the bank. It's also providing dividends, which we haven't even mentioned, but that's just a a, a facet of the life insurance policy itself and the operations of the insurance policy that again are side items. They're not the main thing because the main thing is how you're operating your life, but they are paying dividends. Then there's also a death benefit, which would pay out to your heirs and your family or to a charity of your choosing, or to a trust. And that is going to be something that's going to carry on your legacy. And as you have all of these elements working together, you're improving every other area of your financial life. And so I, we're getting close to the closing of this, but can you share some of the items that you have in your life, in your personal life, in your business economy, what you've been using your capital for. I love how you mentioned what the cash values were like about the 2 million mm-hmm. and, and that you've taken about a million of loans and you're repaying those, or maybe you've taken 2 million of loans and you're repaying about a million. Yep. So that means to me, I'm hearing as myself and as a listener, you've got outstanding loans right now, which means oh, you yeah. value using this capital. You, you're not concerned about the interest that you're going to pay on that life insurance loan. You're more interested in what you're doing with the money and how that's improving your life. So can you comment just on that for a moment? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I think when you understand, and, and this is part of the education of you know how, how banks operate, how financial institutions make money, how they use your capital, how an insurance company operates, how a mutual insurance company operates, and why having a specially designed life insurance contract or you know a series of contracts in your banking system, how that can create your own financing tool. Um, when when you start to understand the mechanics of that and realize that yes, 
if I borrow against my policies, I am going to be charged interest and understanding that that is an opportunity cost. And I'm either going to pay that cost back by taking my own cash flow, my own capital and paying it back to the insurance company. So I could, I could repay the principal and interest on a loan and give that interest back to the insurance company. If I do that, I don't really improve my cash surrender value, but I do, I do increase the death benefit. So that, that could be valuable. Or I could say, you know what? I would rather have an outstanding loan or some outstanding interest on a policy, which would lower my cash surrender value if I were to want to liquidate my policies for whatever reason, because it's, it's a contract that I can do that. But I look at that cost and then leverage it against what my money is doing for me. Mm-hmm. So if I've got that money working for me and I've, I've used my banking system for personal things such as, you know, multiple projects on, on different home improvements. I've paid personal property, real estate taxes. I've paid federal and state income taxes. Um, I've used that money for family vacations, um, charitable donations, um, private loans. I've, I've taken golf trips, um, which, you know, somebody would say, well, why, why would you, you know, borrow against your policies to, um, go on a, you know, on a golf trip, that's just, you know, costing you. And I said, well, you know, number one, because I can, because <laughs> it's my money. Um, number two, uh, you know, if you're going to golf in Scotland and, um, you know, you, you got money sitting in a policy and you want to make that payment right away, then, you know, that's, that's what I did. So, I mean, I, you know, and I've got some clients who, you know, let's say, well, I, I wouldn't use it for a vacation. Great. Don't you, you got other money, you know, I've, I've, I've used it for, down payments on rental properties. Um, and then that's just the personal stuff. On the business side, I've you know, improved the infrastructure of our offices. Um, I've made technology software upgrades. We've done expansion and build outs of our office. Um, I've made strategic acquisitions of wealth and tax practices with that money. I've made equity investments in a restaurant, a technology company, uh, private debt investments. Um, I've uh, used that money to invest in some different um, tax strategies. Um, I've even used my policies for a window of time when I was trying to attain um, favorable bank financing. Basically, what I did was I collateralized my policies with a bank to improve my loan situation and then strategically um, made payments on my policy to basically then say, hey, my collateral you know, I, I basically was over collateralized with the bank. And then I basically turned the tables on the bank and said, well, either we ne- renegotiate my loan with you, or I'm just going to pay it off by going to another bank. And so what they basically said is, okay, we'll release your policy as collateral. You know, we'll leave things here because I was paying a, an interest rate to them that they were, you know, <laughs> very pleased to have. Um, but I've, I've used, I don't know, I've probably taken you know, 25, 26 different loans from my policies. Um, and I, you know, like I said, it's been, you know, almost $2 million of, of different loans. So the fact that I have an outstanding loan balance and I know what that interest is, that's something I can calculate. I can, um, I can keep an eye on, but what mm-hmm. I also know is if I keep putting money through my policies and let's say I just paid down the principal and I don't even touch the interest, I still know what that policy is going to generate as a return net of the interest cost. So mm-hmm. I already know that that money, and I've calculated, I think it's in the, um, 
in the information that you're going to share. I think it'll end up being about 3%. Mm-hmm. But after net of cost of loans, and everything else. So basically, if I, if I don't pay back all that money, I make 3% tax-free on my money. I pass away. My family gets you know, probably close to right now, $15 million in life insurance. So therefore, the return on my money would be a lot higher if, if I passed away sooner than expected. But the reality is, I know that all of the different investments that I've made, if even just, just some of those turn out the way I expect, the actual creation of wealth versus what I've got in my policies as cash value and the death benefit, the creation of wealth will be five to 10 times that number. So the reality is I'm not concerned about that interest cost because I know what I'm doing with the money. The one thing I don't know is when that's going to happen, how much it's going to be and and what the situation is going to be. So therefore I'm leveraging my cash now and using a tool that I can do that with. And that money is going to keep working for me and then later on, I could come back and if one of those investments turn out really well, I could turn around and pay off all those loans immediately and start, start new. And then I'll have a bunch of capital in my current policies. I would most likely build new policies to expand mm-hmm. my banking system and I'll start the whole thing all over again. But, but that's because I know why I'm doing what, I know the purpose of my money. And for a client, the, the idea is if you can see the potential of what this strategy can, can you know, create for you, the idea isn't, oh, well, I got to do it that way. No, the idea is figure out how you want to be utilizing the money and then work with your advisors to structure that system so that it creates as much opportunity as possible for you. Hey, John, I know we're going to have to, uh, we're, I know this, is, this particular podcast is going to generate a lot of questions on your material. So we're going to have to have you come mm-hmm. back on and we're going to actually have to go through the numbers because yeah. I know there's going to be some people that are going to go through the numbers. I think that uh, the concept that I, you, you, you brought up is that people have to, to actually compare this to what they're doing, where they're currently storing the money. That's what we mm-hmm. always say. That doesn't, what we say is if you just, if you just leave it there, then maybe you shouldn't even do it. <laughs> You know, if you're just going to mm-hmm. yeah, just leave it in the bank then, because if you're not going to use the money, then money has no value. Right. But if you're going to use it um, or if you're going to continue to do the other programs like put money in the stocks, but you don't know why you're putting money in the stocks, but you think that's the safe thing to do because, oh, I don't want to do these other investments. But what's interesting, you and I want to do business with people. We can look them in the eye and know them personally. And, mm-hmm. and talk to them and question them and how are you going to develop this business, so on and so forth. We can never do that with a UPS stock or a Coca-Cola stock mm-hmm. or something like that. We, yeah, we can look at the prospectus and we can look at all their financials and things, but that CEO could, could actually leave um, mm-hmm. and the, the, it goes direction. So it's, people think, well, I want to do that. I don't know, ooh, that's risky investing in businesses. Well, that's what you're doing in the stock market. You're investing in businesses. Uh, It's just, it's a mind shift. Um, It doesn't mean it's not without risk, right? I mean, we tell that to people all the time. It's just a different type of risk. 
and um, you're going to be using your policy to do this after you capitalize it. The final thing I wanted to say today is I look at this with people and say, think about your privatized banking system as a business that you're building, right? So you got to capitalize it. And then you've got mm-hmm. to, you got to, you got to uh, constantly be using it. And then mm-hmm. it's going to pay you a dividend, just like a business does. It pays you a distribution dividend. And then you can go to the bank with your business and say, look at the, look what I built up. I want to borrow against it. Well, you do the same thing with your privatized banking system. You built up collateral within that banking system that you can borrow against it. So if you think all these business owners that listen to us, if you think about it, it is just another one of your businesses that you're going to utilize and it's going to get you an internal rate of return, an external rate of return, and someday going to get you an eternal rate of return. Mm-hmm. Then you're, then you got your money working for you in a variety of different ways. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, so this has been a very good show today. And John, I just really appreciate you sharing so much of your perspective and wisdom and specifically the idea that really it has to do with what that person is the purpose of their money and really understanding their financial system, their personal economy, and then using strategies to improve that personal economy. I think so many times we hear from people who say, oh, you're talking about privatized banking. So let's learn all about privatized banking. And the challenge with that is you can understand privatized banking from every single angle and still not apply it well in your life if you don't understand your financial system and your money habits. And so I think there's just so much, um, so much that needs to happen with really getting our money system down and really working smoothly. And that's why privatized banking is not a product. It's a system. It's a conduit. It's a tool to use in your financial life to improve. You said the word optimize. And I love that word optimize the efficiency of your money and help everything to be even better. Now, just as we are closing today, John, I know that people can, when they work with us at the Money Advantage, they're also getting the advantage of being able to work through the collaboration efforts of E3 and E3 Wealth and Tax. Can you um, just tell people how they can get in touch with you directly if they wanted to? And then we'll go ahead and bridge over in the future. We'll have another episode where we show the numbers then. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I can be reached at info at e3wealth.com. Um, and then we also have um, a website where I've got a handful of videos. It's uh, e3privatizedbanking.com. Um, just, just some more educational tools. And we've got some of our eBooks uh, available there. And yeah, I, I'd love the opportunity to come back on the show and go through numbers um, just because I'm, I, I don't consider myself as much of the number person uh, as I used to be does not mean I don't uh, put the uh, suspenders on and, and go into uh, go into detail. I, you know, every once in a while, it's nice to kind of dive into numbers because I think, I think when you can, when you can have a conversation with somebody where you really do focus on the numbers and then once you do that, you say, now, guess what? Now that we focused on the numbers and we talked through them, you can realize that, this conversation we just had really doesn't matter because at the end of the day, the numbers are going to be what they're going to be. You know, the, the numbers aren't going to change. You know, the, the only thing that's going to change the numbers is how you utilize your money. So if you want to improve the numbers, mm-hmm. let's talk about how you're going to utilize the dollars. Um, we can focus on costs. We can focus on, you know, 
the, the limitations. Absolutely. You need to understand all those things. But what you don't realize is if you focus on those things and inhibit the utilization of your money, mm-hmm. then as Bruce said, it's better just to leave your money sitting in the bank. If you're not yeah. going to really focus on how do I want my money to grow? What do I want it to do with it? Then our, our conversation is really, um, it's not adding any value. So mm-hmm. for those clients that want to figure out how to utilize their money, um, this would be a great conversation to have, but it, it cannot be the only conversation. It has to be part of a, you know, a bigger picture. Absolutely. I think the, the, the closing idea that I have from all of this is I think often we think our products, our financial products are the asset. Really, they're not. It's not even our money that's the asset. What the true asset is, is you. And if you are improving your thinking and the way that you do things and your financial system in your life and the way that you have knowledge and control of your investments and you're improving your ability to invest well, that's where the real focus needs to be. The asset is you. So Absolutely. Thank you, John, for joining us today. This has been a fabulous show. In closing, our audience, if you want to get on our calendar and go ahead and book an appointment, you can have a 30-minute session with our advisor team to really look at your financial picture and figure out the next steps for you, figure out how we can help you. You can go to themoneyadvantage.com slash calendar. There also is, make sure you go to e 3 privatizedbanking.com. There's privatized banking resources there. We also have privatized banking secrets Dot com where you can find out some information about privatized banking and really be able to dig in and understand how that works. But again, remember the main asset is you. So in closing, remember success leaves clues. So model the successful few, not the crowd and build a life and business you love. Discover the secret of how to earn a return on the same money in two places at the same time so that you can strengthen your investment returns. We've created a free guide for you that explains the top three things every investor needs their privatized banking system to do. Go to themoneyadvantage.com slash banking, put in your name and primary email address, click the send my free guide button right now, and we'll see you on the inside. Thank you for listening to the Money Advantage podcast. Today's show notes and resources are available for you on themoneyadvantage.com. If you like this episode, make sure you subscribe and leave a review. If you have any questions or desire to speak with a qualified financial professional after listening to today's podcast, we encourage you to reach out to us at hello at themoneyadvantage.com or check us out at themoneyadvantage.com. The opinions and views expressed here are for informational purposes only. This material is educational in nature and should not be deemed as a solicitation of any specific product or service. All investments involve risk and a potential loss of principal. Kalos Capital Incorporated nor Kalos Management Incorporated offer tax or legal advice. Please consult with a tax advisor or attorney for advice regarding the impact on your portfolio. Securities offered through Kalos Capital Incorporated, member FINRA, SIPC, MSRB, and investment advisory services offered through Kalos Management Incorporated and registered investment advisor both located at 11525 Parkwood Circle, Alpharetta, Georgia. E3 Consultants Group is not an affiliate or subsidiary of Kalos Capital Incorporated or Kalos Management Incorporated.